Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live, not from my RV today. I am in fact at a friend's house in Bethesda, Maryland. And that is reflective of where we are at this stage of the pandemic. We are fully vaccinated and it has been absolutely amazing to stay with our friends here in Maryland. Uh, and I recently had the opportunity to relatively quickly drive through North Carolina, which is where our guest, Adam Compton, who is the executive director of annual giving at NC State University calls home. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I'm happy to be here and enjoyed following along as you travel around the country. Well, we just had a board meeting this morning and I was reading out to my board uh, important KPIs across Evertrue's business, but I also shared that we've now traveled 10,170 miles and we've spent roughly $4,800 in gas since we hit the road last year. So uh, those were some uh, atypical KPIs for today's session. Nice. Adam, I've got to ask, uh, you know, one of the things I've been doing with recent guests is, and, and look, let's not bury the lead here. Uh, NC State just raised 58 million, million with an M on their giving day. And we're going to find out how they did that so that you all can do that too. Just kidding. I'm not sure if everybody's going to be able to do that, but we're going to find out how they did it. Uh, but before I do that, I want to go back in time. Adam, I want to know, Adam, junior, senior year of high school, uh, what were you thinking through as it related to your own college decision and ultimately what led you to NC State? You know, that's a, a funny question given, you know, my, my tenure at NC State now. You my family grew up, uh, I, you know, my mom's side of the family, six generations before me all went to Carolina. Um, our arch nemesis. Six arrival. generations. Six yeah. generations. That's like all the yeah. generations. Yeah. Um, went, to, went to Carolina. We parked beside the Keenans at Keenan Stadium, you know, when we went to football and basketball games. Uh, but Carolina didn't have an engineering program. And I, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. And so went to NC State and haven't looked back since. You know, I left. Um, I went straight from undergrad to pretty much working there. And so it's uh, been since 2004 that I've been on campus, basically. So engineering led you there. Uh, and, and now you're leading annual giving, probably not what you expected on your uh, student tour that you did, uh, I'm sure. Uh, but when I look at your time at NC State, I mean, student centers, board directors, all Greek council, homecoming publicity, alumni ambassador, student senator. Did you ever go to class? You have like so many activities here. Is that why you didn't go down the engineering path? Let's be honest. Yeah, well, yes. That, that engineering requires a degree of focus in the classroom that when you're doing everything else, doesn't always work out. But you just went all in. And, and, yeah. and I mean, did you have like mentors or people that, um, you know, friends that just pulled you into things? Because that is a real uh, host of activities. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. It's a, I think it's in some ways it's a snowball effect. You know, you, you jump into one thing and it's like, oh, well, you're, you're doing this. You should come over and look at this. And, you know, I had to learn how to say no and frankly didn't learn that until after college. Um, and, you know, you can see by the things that I was involved with in school uh, that I didn't say no to anything. And everybody was like, hey, why don't you run for this? Or why don't you do this? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And so um, definitely engineering, the academic rigor didn't suit to my extracurricular activities, but I, I learned a lot outside the classroom and uh, ag business management, political science, again, thought I was going to do something completely different, uh, but didn't end up doing that. You know, thought I was going to move to DC, follow my brother's footsteps and work in the policy world and ended up at a job at the university and, you know, have uh, been here ever since. 
Well, by my count, you graduated uh, uh, in, in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. And yep. I think that in the, the 12 years since, it looks like you've spent, you've already spent 13 years or so working at NC State. So oftentimes I, I meet with guests and I learn about their uh, trajectory, which unfortunately in, in this space oftentimes means moving from, from one campus to another and another and another. And you've now rounded the year, uh, rounded 10 years, uh, the corner on 10 years at NC State. Um, and I, I think it's really, really neat when we can interview people who started um, really at the entry level role uh, and have been able to advance internally without moving every three to five years. And, um, and so I do look forward to, uh, to hearing more about that and what you're focused on today. But I know you started out um, very early on in this development specialist role and different uh, shops have different names, de development coordinator could be, um, you know, different expressions for it. But when you think about those um, early uh, moments in the fundraising realm, um, did you know what you're getting into? Did you really understand the work? How did you actually get the job opportunity? I imagine it was through all of the volunteerism and different student work that you did. Um, but when you think back to those first, you know, month, two months on the job, you know, those moments right out of college when you really have, you know, you're learning how to use a, you know, whatever, email and a calendar system, um, you know, in addition to just figuring out what this thing's all about, did, did you hit the ground running right away or was it, um, was it a ramp up? It was definitely a ramp up in two folds. One is you're going from an over-involved student leader who in a lot of ways has direct access to the chancellor, has direct access to whomever across campus to low person on the totem pole, you know, and, and you know, and uh, have to kind of rebuild your reputation, have to rebuild, you know, who you are. And, and, but also at the same time, trying to discover, is this what I really want to do? You know, as much experience that I had in fundraising at the time was the political world, you know, in the political world, you know, you max out at a certain dollar amount and you move on to the next person. And in some ways it's, you know, a candidate's fundraiser is a little bit like the DXO program where, you know, you're calling high volume number of people and you're really trying to build relationships with those people and, and stay touched throughout the year. But it's not major gift work. It's not, you know, even how we do annual giving work here. Um, you know, there is some of that in like when you start getting into low dollar stuff. But I was familiar with candidate based fundraising, picking up the phone, making that action, those kind of things. And I had to learn what it meant to be in higher ed, what it meant to, you know, in a frankly an admin role um i had a supervisor that really worked with me and taught me how to be a professional but also what is development and how it works and you know it but it also meant doing things like scheduling meetings and you know picking up the phone and doing cold calls to see if you know donors in an area or alums in an area would take a visit with her coming back you know from her visits and she was great marcy was great and then she would sit down and say you know here's what i did in that meeting here's what you know i learned but also, you know, talk me through the development process. And that was kind of what got me hooked on development and, you know, wanting to stay in the space. But like you said, you know, the reason I'm still at NC State is because of the opportunity to excel, but also to push the envelope. I've said multiple times, if I wasn't able to push the program forward, if I wasn't able to make change, I'd walk out the door tomorrow. And yes, I love working for my alma mater, but the ability to continue to move the needle and have leadership that says, you know, yeah, do that, um, try that out is something that keeps me here. I love that. It's rare and uh, to hear your passion after 
you know, almost 11 years. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting. And uh, at the same time, you know, I'm curious when you moved up from that development specialist role to really carry your, your first portfolio. Um, do you recall any of those early donor interactions? Were you nervous? Um, you know, any like funny stories or mistakes along the way that you're willing to share? I mean, what stands out as you think about really getting out to meet that first wave of prospects that you manage directly? Yeah, I think, you know, there's always, there's one thing that of course sticks into my mind and it's the very first major gift that was a $25,000 gift. And, you know, the donor said, thank you to me. And I'm like, you're thanking me for, for establishing this, like, this is more money than, you know, this is almost my entire paycheck over the course of a year, you know, that you're donating in one check to the university and, and you're saying, thank you. But it was about the memory of, and legacy of her husband and remembering that at the university and, and something that will be here forever. And it was just a incredible opportunity to hear her, you know, talk about that and to say, thank you. You know, there was, I still, you know, anytime I do cold calls till this day, um, I still get that nervousness and have to prep myself, have to, you know, some of those things of, you know, that Marcy would say to me of like, smile, um, breathe, you know, some of those, you know, moments and even, you know, going into a donor meeting, you know, how much prep you have to do, but also, you know, no matter how much prep you do, you're never going to have all the answers and being able to wing it and say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but let me get back to you. Um, we're all things, but yeah, that moment of her saying thank you to me, still like I can remember it and still get goosebumps to this day. Yeah, I think that's one of the big misconceptions uh, that we hear often is, you know, there there can be this impression that you're out there, oh, I'd never ask people for money or how do you, how do you go and do that? Um, and, and, you know, not recognizing that it's an incredible fulfilling experience for, uh, you know, for many donors at, at, at that level. And I think part of what you and we and the sectors focused on right now is how do we scale that kind of human to human relationship building where they feel a sense of gratitude to you as the fundraiser deeper into the giving pyramid, right? Or, or to do it more consistently at the top of the giving pyramid. Uh, and I know we'll talk more about that, but um, ultimately um, when you think about uh, being on the road, working with um, the same set of, uh, I imagine generally the same set of prospects for uh, over four years, but you probably, in some cases, uh, we're able to really build pretty deep relationships um, with people. Are you still in touch with any of those uh, donors or, or have you largely kind of you know, moved be beyond that? There are a couple of those donors that I, I stay in touch with. You know, when they're in town, they reach out. Some of it is, you know, I was the first person they started talking to and now still continue to be, you know, their point of contact at the university. And, and some of that is, you know, there's new development officers that come and go and, you know, I'm still here and the email still works and know that they can yeah, get a response I, from me. I got to ask, you know, how many people are more tenured than you in the development organization? There's a few of us, but I, I don't, you know, cause it's one of those things that turns over. It's you yeah. know, new leadership comes in, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, I hear about this is the first, you know, real campaign that I've been in. You know, as a student, I knew about the previous campaign, but what does turnover look like after the campaign? And, you know, I know that we're investing in positions to stay, um, but we'll see what really happens with our staff. You know, does everybody start jumping ship as the campaign wraps up? And so as you have more tenure, I know you're able to take on some special projects and continue to advance. But, but I have to say, 
I think your career path is somewhat, um, you know, unique, not just in the tenure at, at one institution, which happens to be your alma mater, but you also went from frontline fundraiser to annual giving. And I think it's more common, uh, or at least my sense is, that people might start in annual giving and then eventually move into the frontline um, you know, side of, of, of the house. And so was that a, a conscious decision, an opportunistic um, decision? I know that you're still very involved as a deputy campaign manager, so it's not probably just um, you know, totally uh, you know, binary uh, or a flip of the switch, but um, what was your initial impression as you made the move from one-to-one relationship to really more of a marketing, one-to-many, one-to-few, uh, you know, campaign, uh, you know, annual giving campaign kind of model? So part of this comes from two things. One, I was building a portfolio over those years and found myself just having the same conversations over and over again. You know, I'd go into a discovery meeting and know exactly what I'm going to say and know, you know, kind of where I was going and not enough variety, frankly, in my, in what I was doing. And so that led me to start having, you know, ideas around where else could we go. But also some of this is, you know, annual giving and mass marketing, you know, personalization at scale has always been something that has been at the back of my mind and something that's been a passion. And so it was a, a nice segue because um, I understood the major gift side of the house and, and to go from major gift world to annual giving world with special projects in between, it allowed me to kind of understand the full picture of the program. So not mm-hmm. only did I know how you know gifts are processed and how the major gift process works and annual giving's role in that, but also you know how the different sides of the shop can work better together. And so it gave me a unique experience to see you know major gift work and then go to annual giving versus the other way around. Adam, can I ask as you think back to the time where you were, were working one on one through your portfolio? Was that almost like a, a focus group for your work in the annual fund? And by that, I mean, I imagine sometimes those donors will be giving you feedback on how they've been solicited in the past or offer constructive criticism of like why they haven't been giving. I mean, does anything stand out through those conversations? I know it was some time, but did that help maybe shape your view of the opportunity for the annual fund to become more personalized? Absolutely. So the way in which I did discovery was a lot like a feasibility study. Um, And so I had my set of questions that I was going through because that made it easier for me to say, hey, look, you know, as part of our meeting, I'm asking a series of questions. And of course, we had the small talk and and I was able to use those questions to drive my conversation. So it was exactly like a one on one, you know, focus group where it was like, well, what do you think about philanthropy? You know, what do you think about the university asking alumni for donations? You know, how do you think we communicate about philanthropy and the impact of philanthropy? Um, and so in a lot of ways, I would leave those meetings with ideas, you know, that we're not doing enough, that, you know, the only time that people hear from us is 30 years after graduation when they've made it. Um, my, the easiest visits I had were the, those people that, you know, had given 10 plus years, had, you know, moved up the pot, you know, moved up the pyramid and, and made, you know, a $5 gift to a $50 gift to a $100 gift. You know, some of that is the untapped potential of NC State as well. You know, that it, I saw the potential on what could be done and where we can go um, and, and just got me more excited about the opportunity to kind of move the needle and to, to see it as a big need. I approached our, our vice chancellor five years ago, you know, basically with a memo that said, 
we need to be doing a giving day and here's what I think we need to do and here's the return that I think it can happen. We probably weren't ready for this scale of giving day that we do at that point, but it was those ideas and those conversations that I had with, uh, with donors that led to a lot of this. Well, why don't you take us through that progression, uh, Adam, because you, know, you, you present a memo five years ago and then last month you raised $58 million from 14,272 gifts at last count by my, by my watch. Uh, from 100 counties in North Carolina, which is all of the counties in North Carolina, all 50 states, 23 countries. Incredible. And you've gotten a lot of press and coverage and your chancellor. Uh, Woodson is is obviously super excited. um, And I imagine it just creates a bit of positivity and a flywheel that now even as a frontline professional doing my traditional major gift work, I've got a new story and momentum and growth to share with my prospects that I imagine you know, you want to create a little FOMO and, and, and make sure that people get involved. So from that memo to where we are, you probably didn't expect you'd be on a podcast talking about raising $58 million in a day. Um, and I know that there's probably some fine print around what that exactly means, which I hope you'll share. Uh, but just walk us through the progression uh, and then your reflections in, in this most recent experience. Yeah. So whenever I talk about giving days, I have to give this disclaimer. The only giving day in the country that I know you can compare us to is Purdue. Stop, like, it's because we're using the same playbook, the same mentality. We've worked with them to develop our strategy around giving day, and we count the same way. And I, I, you know, as much as I love to compare to a a rival down the road or whomever else, you're not comparing apples to apples. We're playing two different games. And it comes down to the goals of the institution and why we host a giving day and why we do it. so, you know, when we talk about $58 million, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and, and frankly, it's, you know, one of those things, it's a monster that we've created uh, that is all hands on deck and really is one of those things that requires bringing everybody to the table, even in our highly decentralized place. So first giving day was fiscal year FY19, March of, uh, of that year, million, you know, was our first time doing it. We got the green light to go and do it in October of uh, the October before. So we planned our first giving day in about six months. You know, what we saw was, you know, our alumni answer the call, you know, our our development staff, our communications come together. I vividly remember our, our vice chancellor saying, take the dollars and donors off the table and what we raised What's more impactful to me is the way in which our entire campus came together and worked from one playbook to drive a strategy. And because, you know, whenever we, we were hosting a giving day for three main reasons. One, we were in a comprehensive capital campaign. How do we further the brand and reach of the university through that and through something like a day of giving? How do we build the pyramid? And how do we, we, we use things like gamification to drive momentum that, you know, we're in the Brian would describe it as the dog days of the campaign. Jim describes it as being on a bike in the mud. You're just kind of slogging through once you're in the public phase of a campaign sometimes, and you need these momentum swings that help you keep going. We deploy a heavy, heavy, heavy major guest strategy with our giving day. And, but what it does is it requires, it gives us that point in time. So you think about even in the political world, you know, it's, does it really matter that's the end of a fundraising quarter and what's going to be reported in the SEC report? 
maybe because it's a barometer, but not really. Like their budgets are not going to change that much between one and the next. But you're creating these moments in time where you are encouraging people to get on board and communicating about it. And that's really what we're doing is we're taking, we're fabricating a date that's not the end of the fiscal year, that's not the end of the calendar year and saying, we need your support by this date in order to achieve this. And then we're pulling on gamification and things like leaderboards and competition in order to, to drive people back um, to make those gifts. So when you look at an NC State day of giving, um, some secret, so, you know, kind of your pull back the curtain, you know, our annual giving program roughly will raise, so we're counting all gifts below $50,000 from an individual or cash equivalency. Um, the number that I think is probably more telling comparing apples to apples is this year we raised about $2 million in cash through the website. But as an overall program in annual giving, we're doing somewhere between 14 and $17 million. And so you can see the impact that that $2 million has. Year one, we were just over, we were just at a million dollars. We, we um, had scheduled a March 2020 day of giving. COVID happened. We postponed our day of giving and, and pushed it until the fall. And so actually we'll do two days of giving within one fiscal year this year. Fall was $25.6 million. Um, and again, heavy major guest strategy. And then we, we did it again in March. The thing to remember so, too is, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's an amazing overview. And thank you for the transparency because I think, it is, I mean, look, we're all seeing everybody on our LinkedIn, on our Facebook, share the day of giving recap. And it always reads, you know, this many donors, this many dollars. But I think what you're what you're saying is like in a lot of cases, it's that many donors online and this many dollars online. And you're saying it's a different strategy, it's more major gift um, uh, connected at, at NC State. I don't want to say centric, but I am really curious to know more about um especially given that you would have, I think, unique empathy with the frontline staff, given that you were a part of that team in the past, how has their perception or impression of the day of giving evolved over the last five years? Because my sense is you've now essentially created artificial, though it may be, you've created a sense of urgency. You've given them a date that they can shape donor conversations around. And you've also given them a couple of extra months between now and June 30th to close the loops on things that don't get done by giving day. So it's almost like two ends of the fiscal year in a certain regard. Yeah, and that's the, the, the joy of giving day and, and the curse of giving day is that you know everybody is all in with giving day and it, it's creating additional work. It's creating you know, very quick moving. So we, you know, we only allow two weeks in which a major gift can be booked um, and we have specially branded giving forms and those kind of things. And what I stress to our major gift officers is, this is another piece in your toolkit to close a gift. So that might be a planned gift where you've been going on and having this conversation with a donor for, for a long time. And they're just, they won't pull the trigger. They won't sign that statement of intent. Here's something else in your toolkit to say, look, Grant, sign this uh, statement of intent. Let's go ahead and document your planned gift. You're going to give your college a boost on the leaderboard. You're going to move them from third place to, to second place or first place because we're going to drop your gift at a critical moment that drives the gamification. And we're going to tell you to go watch the leaderboard and then move up. Um, you're going to help us win a larger share of our Chancellor's Challenge funds that we have available. Um, you're going to help us have this other impact that sometimes we just, it, it's that incentive. It's, it's something else. It's stewardship that we can't normally bring to the table. 
I think the other side of it though is, so you have the work going into day of giving for a major gift officer and then coming out of day of giving, you've got the work of prospect research. And now this new pool of people that have raised their hand and said, hey, I, I want to support NC, I still want to support NC State. And how do we, frankly, the work doesn't stop. We've just created a new set of work. And so it's a, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's the momentum for our program is incredible. And you can see it in our weekly fundraising. And so we, we track weekly towards our campaign goal. And, and if you look at the chart, you see these spikes where it's literally like a straight line up and that's giving day and the impact that it has. Is there a way, um, you know, for example, we, we use Slack at Evertrue and we've got some connections so that like every time a new deal closes or somebody renews their contract, we, we have this little alert and then people can celebrate and cheer. Is there a like major gifts being booked equivalent of that or should there be? I mean, how do you start to like when that two week booking period around giving day hits, like, I mean, are people, you know, if we are in the office, high-fiving and, you know, cheering, I mean, like, how do you kind of create some shared enthusiasm um, by showing that spike in real time. So that's the excitement of Giving Day is that we're celebrating all of these gifts and we are, you know, so we do an internal live stream for our staff on the day in this COVID environment where we're saying, you know, you know, congratulations to so-and-so, we're dropping your gift and it's a big party. There are trophies that are going around, you know, for the top unit, the, the most gifts, most uh, dollars raised, the, this year we did the top five fundraisers got a uh, special coffee with the chancellor to where he was able to say thank you. We surprised them. And, you know, they all of a sudden they had a meeting from the vice chancellor on the calendar. They didn't know what it was for that. Um, you know, we even pre um, COVID when we were planning last time, we had planned to have a, a Miami style turnover chain to where the person that closed the largest gift got a chain to, to wear at frontline fundraiser meetings. Um, you know, it's, I love it it's excitement and fun for our staff as well, as much as it is about, you know, um, raising those dollars. It's, it's incredible how our team comes together and that starts with leadership at the top. And this is a chancellor initiative and works all the way down through annual giving. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, this is a sector where uh, there is a lot of inspiration, perhaps copy and stealing even. Um, why shouldn't every other institution do exactly what you all do and run the same playbook that you're running? Or put another way, if you were to go and lead fundraising elsewhere or uh, um, uh, consult on, on annual giving, uh, days of giving, is there another playbook, like, is there a scenario where this playbook wouldn't make the most sense? So you have to be willing to say, I'm all in uh, for this to work. I, I sincerely believe that if we didn't get everybody playing and working across the board, communications, advancement services, um, everybody willing to come to the table and make this happen, we wouldn't get the success that we see. Um, that if you're, you're pro and that's why I think, you know, I've heard Brian say, you know, five years ago when you delivered that memo, we weren't ready because we weren't ready to come together as an institution and do this. This only works when every single person is playing across the board. We wouldn't get the numbers that we see. We wouldn't get 10,000 donors. You know, we wouldn't get those 14,000 gifts. We wouldn't get that almost $2 million in cash, the website that are incredibly important for the annual giving numbers. If it weren't for everybody 
working and, and you know our staff are posting on social media you know I, the the other side of this is like we own twitter for the day in the triangle area and and you know we're trending online you know when we look at brand watch and the number of impressions that we see it's like 40 million impressions through brand watch and but that's because everybody's coming together and so if your institution or small nonprofit whomever is not ready for that this size giving day i think a, a giving day model can work where you create points in time but this large scale high volume in terms of dollars and donors may not be the best thing for you. It's, uh, it's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Um, what are the downsides? What are the risks? What are the frustrations? If you don't mind uh, me asking. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's important to always keep in mind, like why we do a giving day and those goals around brand and growing our, our pyramid and those kind of things. But I think, you know, we saw, frankly, if you're a, a numbers driven person, um, you know, when we moved our, our giving day out of March, my numbers took, or the annual giving numbers at NC State took a hit um, because we didn't have that giving day in the fiscal year. Yeah, because we, we built our entire calendar around it. We even see, you know, on the annual giving level, donors holding back and saying, you know, I'm waiting for giving day when we're calling and asking them to, to make a gap. And so you've created something where I don't know how we break it apart. You know, if, you know, everybody said at the beginning, giving days have a lifespan, they're going to die. I don't really know if that's going to happen. Um, but what I can tell you is I don't know how you take it apart at this point. And I think in the, some ways in, I think you also have to be comfortable with, I'm not convinced that we will, let me, let me rephrase that. I think, $58 million is an extraordinary number. It's going to be really hard to, to beat again. Uh, and some of that's coming out of a campaign and, and where we are next fiscal year. But those numbers may vary wildly uh, from year to year in terms of dollars raised. You can see it in our numbers, 13.6, 25.8, um, and now the, the over $50 million mark. You know, And so I think the other side of it is the amount of work that goes into it. It is, you know, for us, it's a all hands on deck. Our entire university communication shop is putting everything aside, it feels like, to, to focus on this. Annual giving's doing that. Major gift officers are doing that. Um, and it creates competition. And no matter yeah. when you have competition, you're going to have somebody at the bottom of the leaderboard. Um, yeah, so I think your, your point is you've got to go all in because it has to work, right? I mean, you've put so much into it that it sort of has to work. Um, otherwise, uh, it would be really hard to achieve your annual uh, totals both in major and in annual giving. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to think that the clock strikes 12 on a giving day. You know, you crack the champagne, hopefully then uh, sleep well. Um, but but I imagine that the work, uh, a new kind of work uh, kicks off immediately. And we've been talking a lot about the intersection of stewardship and prospect discovery and how do we uh, now make those 14,272 donors, whether they're first-time donors or it was their 40th gift uh, in a row, uh, how do we make sure that they feel special? How do we stand out from all the other noise uh, in their inbox? And, you know, I'd be curious to know, is there special stewardship that is giving day stewardship, or is it more those giving day gifts fit into your existing stewardship frameworks? So it's a mix of both. So we do have some special day of giving type stewardship, where we're communicating about the impact that you as an individual had on the day and how your gift helped contribute to the success 
but also how you helped us win these extra share of challenge funds for your unit and how we use those challenge funds. You know, it's the, everybody wants to be part of something. And so communicating that back is part of the special stewardship. I think we have to, you know, as we think about where we grow, we have to think about too, though, you know, that we had, I think 11 donors give over a hundred gifts. And some of that's playing into the gamification. You know, they want, you know, they see that a $10 gift helps and, and that count. And so they'll split their, you know, thousand dollar gift up into $10 increments. But what do we do special for them? How do we communicate that we know you did this? Mm-hmm. I think the other side of this is where we have to get better with going forward too, is people are giving us indications around where they want to give. So giving day is one of those moments where we come out and say, here are 300 funds or whatever it may be, pick your passion. Um, and so we've got to think about what does that data tell us and mm-hmm. how we go about soliciting donors that we make some assumptions that you graduated from the college of X, Y, and Z, you must want to support the college of X, Y, and Z. And we got to use that data. So I think there's a lot of work left to be done in this space. Yeah. I think the other side of this is we don't have enough boots on the ground to reach 10,879 donors in 30 days and 60 days, whatever it may be. And so what can we do at scale to, to deepen that relationship, to show that impact, to break through the noise that you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so that we, cause we know, you know, we need them to renew. We need them to take a meeting or a conversation with us, be it in a zoom environment um, for possible major gift conversations. Um, this only works and is successful if more comes out of it and you can build right. on it next year. So you- yeah, and that, I think that's the big shift we see in, in the giving day world right now is, um, yes, it's about that day, but it's about what happens after, uh, both from a stewardship perspective, but also from a discovery perspective. And I know that you're passionate about the use of data and we've definitely appreciated your perspective throughout our partnership. But you know what, what I'm constantly challenging our team on is, how do we look at the 14,000 gifts and then narrow it down to the top 1,400 and they're narrowed down to the top 140 and now to the top 14 and then start coming up with rules and triggers and a plan so that without your prospect research team having to do a bunch of manual digging, without a bunch of spreadsheet pivot tables where we're trying to triangulate um, you know, some of those results, how can we make that piece almost automatic through data so that it frees up more time? to really have elevated stewardship experiences, not just for the current major gift assigned prospects who get involved on giving day. Like I I take for granted that they will have good stewardship experiences and that now you can do things with the chancellor via Zoom that you couldn't have done three years ago. But what about that next best set of unassigned prospects? How do we start using the data to even decide what next best even means and then start figuring out things we can do almost instantly um, as part of a, you know, annual plus uh, kind of engagement plan that will make it almost impossible for those people not to renew so that you can then spend more of the resources you might spend on renewal on acquisition of the next wave or reactivation of the next wave. And I think that's hopefully um, an area where we'll see a lot of innovation here in the coming months and years. We're going to have to see innovation. I don't, I don't think it's an option in a lot of ways that other nonprofits across the country for-profit businesses, we're compete. We're not. We are competing in one sense, in that if we don't innovate and move forward, we're going to be left behind. Because at the end of the day, you know, Charity Water or the food bank can tell you exactly. You know, your gift of a thousand dollars resulted in feeding ten thousand people. That 
instant impact. You know, it, when you invest in higher ed, you're playing, you are investing in people's lives, but you're playing a little bit more of a long-term game with your investment. And so it takes, it's harder to communicate that in direct marketing, I think. And sometimes that impact that we have, and that's where we've got to get more into the automation space. We've got to understand more about how, how we communicate with people at scale, but personalized. Love or hate it. You know, every time I, I get an email from Starbucks, it knows the drink that I always buy. It, it's pinging me because I haven't been back in the store long enough. How do we replicate some of that experience here, but also knowing that we've got a little bit of a higher burden in order to communicate the power and doing that at scale? I love that, Adam. And, you know, we just, uh, in our board meetings today, we were talking about, um, even from a donor experience perspective, understanding your history, right? Like how many times do we look at an alumni profile, we see the history, the gifts that they made, the funds they've given to, the degrees they had, all of that stuff right there on the screen in front of us. Where's their version of that? You know, I can see my Starbucks history. I can see uh, my recent orders. I can see my Uber history and how much that's fallen off in the last year. I can see uh, all of my flights and a beautiful dashboard with Jeff Blue. Where's the donor equivalent of that? And I know different uh, shops have have tried, you know, building or customizing different versions of a donor portal, but I feel like we are a long way away uh, from that Starbucks experience, and it absolutely should serve as an aspiration. Because unlike your relationship with Starbucks, which is like pretty transactional, you're a consumer. Those people that gave to you on Giving Day, for the most part, are deeply connected to your institution, and their identity is a part. Uh, your institution is a part of their identity, and that is something that. Very few for-profit brands, very few other nonprofits can really say, and I think it's a massive, still untapped uh, area of potential for the higher ed sector. For sure. You know, I joke with my, my nonprofit friends that my job's easier um, because I open up a database of 240,000 living alumni that have had, for the most part, an amazing experience with us. It is hard for, you know, a food bank to solicit somebody that comes through their doors, um, you know. I can solicit somebody that's had that experience and, and to seen the power of what higher ed can do for somebody. And, and so, you know, I've got a better captivated audience in some ways, um, but that should mean that I have to do a better job at communicating the impact and right. the power of their gift and who they are as an individual. Yeah, look, I think um, every one of your alumni is deeper down the funnel than most nonprofits would have at their disposal, right? Like you aren't sitting there having to explain to your alumni, like this is what NC State is and this is what it does and this is why it matters, right? People are, have already gone through the enrollment funnel. And then the question is, can we drop them into the uh, engagement and development funnel and, and create a lifetime value? But like there was a moment in time not that long ago when no one knew what Charity Water was, right? No one had any existing awareness or appreciation so the fact that they've been able to go from zero to where they are with zero built-in affinity and appreciation, I think that does reflect a huge uh, area of strength and potential. Uh, then honestly, maybe sometimes hold Tyra back. Maybe we take for granted that because people went here, of course they're gonna donate or some percentage of people are just gonna feel obligated to. But if we can marry some of that personalization, the impact, the storytelling, the data-driven approach with this pre-existing affinity relationship you know, formative experiences in our lives, I think there's a lot of untapped potential out there still. I think that's the story of NC State in a lot of ways that we've just started to tap into our potential and where we could go. Um, I think, you know, we, we talk about giving days as, you know, a, a moment in time that helps us turn the corner 
for NC State, but there's just so much, you know, passion for this place and our alumni and our friends and our, and our students. And I think you're exactly right. I, I think that it's just such a, I think to me, it's a joy to, to be able to work here because of that and, and to be able to work with fellow alumni and have that conversation, but also to see like, oh man, where can we go? It is, you know, also, and, and the impact that that has on the university and the students, you know, our chancellor was very great. It was, it was every time he talks about giving day, he's talking about the impact that that has on our students and the lives that we're changing with that money and, and the power of philanthropy. And, and I think that's important also to remember as we talk about $58 million, what that's going to do for today and the generations to come and the societal impact. You think about the the domino effect there or the butterfly effect or whatever effect you want to call it that this money will have. I think that's also pretty telling, but that's a story that we're just starting to tell. And there's so much more I think we can do. I recently hosted Jim Langley on our podcast and Jim had this really neat uh, expression that he used that I'm going to borrow for the rest of my career. It was, we need to stop talking about annual giving and start talking about annual problem solving. And I think it's the same thing could be said of a giving day. Yes, you had a day of giving. Yes, it raised $58 million. What problems are being solved now, either on an individual level, at an organizational level, at a school or unit, day of problem solving, raised $58 million. Here, the problem solved, the impact, the evidence of that is going to further, I think, cement the case for support. I think that's only going to get, I think if you looked at and did some focus groups or surveys, I think as you start going into the younger generations, that that's only going to become more impactful and more important to them. I think there is there was more trust in institutions, maybe in, in other generations, and this idea of you're doing good work, I'm going to support you. I think and, and believe that there is more of a conversation now that's happening that's saying, look, I'm going to give you 100 bucks, I'm going to give you 10 bucks, whatever it may be, but what's the social return I'm going to get on this? I, I trust you, I had a great experience but I still want to return on this dollar that I'm investing in you. It's not a gift. It's an investment. Love it. Yeah. Look, I think just as you are uh, conditioning your community to understand a sense of urgency, artificial day, get it done. <laughs> uh, other platforms are conditioning us to understand the impact. If I give $5, I'm going to have a set of benefits or a set of impact that links to that GoFundMe campaign or to that other nonprofit campaign. And this much money equals this much water, clean water for someone elsewhere. So it's not always gonna be a direct, uh, uh, we can't always directly tie it to, uh, you know, it's not a one for one model, right? We haven't seen Tom's for alumni giving yet, right? Mm -hmm. Buys, buy one, give one. Um, but I do think the more that we can uh, connect it to that impact story, uh, also keeping it really simple uh, is gonna be critical. I know you wouldn't have stayed uh, in this role at one institution, I mean, obviously different roles, but at one institution for over a decade, if you didn't believe in a leadership, uh, and I'm sure there's been some change over that time, but who are some of the mentors or colleagues that uh, have really helped you grow from recent, passionate, overcommitted student leader to, uh, you know, to somebody that's, um, you know, in a leadership role now? You know, there, there's several people that I think about that have touched my career along the way. One is the fact that I can pick up the phone and call any institution, you name it. And there is somebody that will take a meeting with me and explain to me how they do their job or what they're doing and what lessons they've learned, you know, 
And it, it's as simple as, you know, somebody pulled up and walked through how they enabled Google Analytics Tag Manager on the giving format and showed us how they built it. That's the power of how higher ed. And there's so many people along the way that have, and that's what allowed me to innovate and do more is because I don't have to go to another institution and work there. I can pick up the phone and call. But as I think about, you know, Kashal was our um, associate vice chancellor for um, advancement services, who's now at SMU. You know, he's one of those folks that challenged me along the way and pushed me um, not only to apply for the annual giving job, but also to um, think about how I do my job and how I serve as a leader. Um, you know, I think about, you know, Brian and Jim and Carrie, who frankly took a, a risk on me and said, you know, hey, look, we think you'll be good in annual giving. We're going to name you the interim. Um, I, I served as the interim for a year before I, I was interviewed for the job and, and received the job. But they took a risk in saying, you know, hey, look, we're going to we're going to put you in this space. Same kind of risk that Marcy, my, my first boss, took on me and said, you know, hey, look, you're doing a good job as an admin. You don't have any frontline fundraising experience, but I think you, you can do it and I'm going to help you do it and move me into a frontline fundraising role. And then you look at people like Sean Keister at UC Davis, who is always willing to talk shop with me and break things down, or Howard at, at Berkeley, or any of these other colleagues that like I can get on the phone with and pick these people's brain or Zoom. And, you know, and then that just gets the wheels turning for me. I'm sure my, you know, I'm sure Jeff and Advancement Services hates when I have these calls because I come back with ideas and I'm like, can we do this? How do we do this? It may take us five years, but let's start building the plan to get mm -hmm. there. And so, um, how, how is your collaboration? Career. You just mentioned Howard, uh, who's, who's been on the podcast, Sean, who's a great leader in the space. Um, how has your collaboration with those peers changed, if at all, during the pandemic? Like, has the, you know, you were doing Zooms before the pandemic, right? We were all doing Zooms before the pandemic, but we were also going to conferences and meetups and so forth. Have you felt like there's been even less friction in getting peers mm -hmm. connected or maybe, um, maybe more because y'all really enjoy getting together in person? I will say that there is, there is something special about sitting down at the close of a conference or that night over drinks and we just can't help ourselves in talking shop. There, right. There's something special about that. But what I think COVID and, and frankly, buying it, moving 50 years ahead in this digital environment, maybe not 50, but, you know, pre before Zoom, I mean, I maybe got on Zoom once or twice. I'm able to jump from Zoom to Zoom meeting. I'm not driving across campus, spending 30 minutes parking to go for a 30 minute meeting and then going back to my office. Does that change I mean, this fall, Adam? Does that change or is oh, that absolutely. with us forever? Um. I'm will, saying, is that behavior yeah. change? Will that stick? I mean, are you going to be getting into meetings, drive your car or across campus? I mean, yeah, think about how many like campus travel hours have been saved collectively across the staff, but we like seeing each other in person. So how does that balance out at NC State? I think, you know, we're going to rethink our business model, I think, in terms of how we do meetings and how we, I think we will always be in the hybrid space in some way, shape or form. We've, we've proven that like we can get our jobs done. It can be highly effective by not having that, you know, 30 minutes of, of commute. Um, I think there are gonna be times where it's gonna be really important that we get in the office and get around a whiteboard and have that. I think it was the, the Amazon CEO at one point or, or maybe it was Google that was talking about like the innovation that happens after the meeting at the whiteboard where two people, but I think we're gonna to have to be careful about building those times in to say, 
you know, we just need to get in a room and talk this out um, versus a Zoom call where, you know, um, you can be checking email or other things. But I think there is going to be a level of comfort with, yeah, you can work from home um, two days a week or, you know, I think it's gonna, does everybody need a desk? Um, can we hotel space? Can we really rethink our, our business model to where we can be more collaborative, but also be more flexible uh, yeah. in, in the work that we do? I love it. I've got a couple of points uh, before we bring it home here, but uh, I, I heard some of what you just said, which is why I'm asking the question. You know, we've asked you, where does the sector overinvest? Where does it underinvest? There were a few other uh, in your pre-podcast questionnaires where you just <laughs> kind of kept coming back to doing it the way we've always done it, the way we've always done it, stuck in our old ways. Like there was a pretty common pattern, um, but you said we're underinvesting in data. We need to be more focused on hyper-personalization and we need to stop doing it the way we've always done it. What do you mean by that? And how have you seen that get blown up in the last year? Yeah, so when I, you know, when I was in the special projects role, um, where I was cleaning out the junk drawer of all the projects somebody should have been managing, but nobody's had the time or bandwidth. I think it was Kishal that they told me like, the university is a cruise ship and it takes a long time to turn things and to change things of where we're going. Well, in some ways we've been able to change that because we had a necessity. Um, but this idea that, well, this is the way we've done it and it's successful has got to stop because um, it's just not, we're going to get left behind. Um, I, I think, you know, NC State, you know, we, we do some of that, but some of it is like, we frankly just haven't been doing this long enough to be able to say, look, we've done this for a hundred years um, and this is what works for us. But I, I think as an industry, it's definitely something that I hear a lot of like, well, this is how we've do always done it. Well, we should be questioning that. You know, one of the things that I, I sincerely believe in is like, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. And we have to continue to think about and how do we improve everything that we're doing? How do we drive a better ROI? How do we look at our KPIs for something and, and do better next time? What are the lessons learned? And maybe that means we fail at times, but what are the lessons learned from those failures? And that's where, you know, you want to talk about something that drives me crazy is when everybody's like, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Well, this is our opportunity to rethink. And I think the past year has shown us that we can rethink things that like we can do digital events and do them really well and engage people that, you know what, do we need to get on an airplane and fly to, you know, I think about some of my experience as a major gift officer, I would you know, pick up one or two, three or four, you know, anchor meetings in DC. Um, and then I would pick up some other meetings, but did I really need to go to DC um, when now in the, the element of Zoom, you know, frankly, I could have done some of those meetings via Zoom. I could have, you know, had the chancellor or leadership pop into that meeting for a few minutes. Uh, things that, you know, as a you know, assistant director, Absolutely. I'm never going to travel with the chancellor. No, I mean, look, what is what is best for the donor is what's best for the donor. You getting on a plane or getting in the car, driving multiple hours and sitting down one on one with the donor at lunch. Or is what's best for the donor an opportunity for you to facilitate the meeting and then orchestrate a great experience because you can bring in the faculty, the student, the student athlete, the, the coach, whoever it may be that's going to be the beneficiary. That to me is the biggest um, potential missed opportunity if we revert to, uh, I've been cooped up for a year and I can't wait to get back out on the field. And I know there's some of that that needs to happen, um, but I think that we will settle out at uh, 80% less travel in the advancement space than before. I think there's an 80-20 rule. I think 20% of the travel we did before really, really mattered. And I think 80% mm -hmm. of it was just 
had to, had to fill out the trip, had to round out the meeting, had to like come up with the justification to be able to take that trip. And um, that I hope is something that we don't lose uh, as we uh, get back to normal. Oh, I agree. I, I think we've got to think about, as you just said, what's best for the donor and what's the best experience we can offer. And some of that is a sit down lunch, but some of it will be, you know, these experiences that we can bring to somebody now that mm -hmm. people are comfortable with technology. Totally. Um, that they're, From you know, the age of three to 93, you know what Zoom yeah. is, you know what FaceTime is, you know how to interact this way. And, you know, I, I look, I just saw my colleague Molly Hall uh, in the DC area um, this week. I was able to meet with her outside uh, for the first time in over a year. And uh, we've probably Zoomed as much as any two people on our team. And was it better to see her in person? Absolutely. Was it three times as good? Was it four times as good? Was it worth $1,000 to go buy a plane ticket and uh, rent a car and get a hotel? I don't know. I mean, so you need some, some of that for sure. Um, but I think we've all gotten accustomed to, to this. And hopefully, by the way, whatever Zoom is, I mean, it's not going to stop. And you, you got to believe that everything from Zoom fatigue to people background multitasking, those are all things on their product roadmap that are going to have innovation over the next five years. There's no way that our Zoom experience in three to five years is what it is today. I, at least I don't think. And I think Zoom fatigue will go away. I think we're going to go back to some level of in-person meetings. I think people will be much more comfortable getting on a Zoom again once we're back in kind of this hybrid world. Um, and it, well, it's, I, yeah. I have to ask as we as we wrap, you know, we've we've seen a lot of hiring freezes, we've seen some thaws, and we've seen some full-on melting. Uh, where are you uh, in the context of hiring? I think you made a pretty good case uh, for NC State and the innovation. Um, I would love to quote you um, here on what you said. You said, if you want to do some kick-ass shit and rethink things, join our team. Pretty succinct. Uh, but tell me why you feel that way, Adam. Well, I think, and I'm not saying this just because I'm on a podcast or, or whatever it may be, but I would put our leadership up against any leadership in the country and, and point to them as a role model for how things work and, and a program. And, and what that means is that it's given me the freedom to excel. And there are opportunities to do that here at NC State. So you know, we know that for a comprehensive capital campaign that we're in, we should probably have double the number of boots on the ground. When we start thinking about the potential that's there, it's there. You don't have to, to dig too far into the data to see where we could go. Um, and so, you know, I'm excited to see, you know, that we continue. Um, you know, we've definitely had an opportunity to rethink some things, but we are continuing to think about where staffing goes. We're, you know, annual giving is getting a fresh look at NC State and saying, you know, hey, we, we need to invest in this space because we got to grow the bottom of the pyramid. Um, but we also need to think about how we move people up and, and rethink some of our strategies. And, you know, and to me, I, I think that's a really telling of leadership, but also a, a telling of, you, you know, like what we could do if we only are achieving our potential and that impact that it will have not only on our students, but the state of North Carolina and the world around us. And so, you know, Lots of, good, lots of good things to come for NC State. I love it. Just a really. You know, your, your passion and enthusiasm, it really is contagious. And, uh, you know, we have shared interests in trying to figure out ways to leverage data, scale deeper, personalized relationships. You and your team have always been amazing sounding boards for um, our crew at, at Evertrue. And we are very uh, grateful for that. So I would encourage anybody listening, if you want to talk shop, uh, you've heard a great, um, I, I think, uh, 
uh, at least introductory view of how Adam thinks about the world and what he's excited about. Find him on LinkedIn. Adam, any other way that you want people to uh, to stay in touch? Yeah, LinkedIn is definitely one of those spaces. You can always shoot me an email. Uh, my information's on the website. Always happy to connect because that's, the, as I mentioned earlier, the joy of higher ed and having those conversations. And because that's what's got me to where I am today. And so always happy to have other conversations. With Love you. it. Well, if you are listening and you want to also have a $58 million day of problem solving, I encourage you to reach out to Adam and his team. With that, Brent signing off. This will be one of my last episodes uh, filmed uh, or recorded on our Grinnebago trip around the country. Uh, we'll be back in Rhode Island in the Boston area relatively soon. Uh, thank you all for, uh, for bearing with my varying uh, levels of Wi-Fi connectivity and static and all kinds of issues, but it's been a journey uh, and we're going to keep the podcast going once I get settled back into uh, uh, my new normal. So uh, thank you all signing off from Bethesda with Adam Compton, the Executive Director of Annual Giving at NC State University. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Take care.